all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The medical information presented on Southern Remedy is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and should not be used for any diagnostic or treatment information. The information conveyed does not create any kind of patient-physician relationship. Please consult your health care provider before making any decisions about your specific medical condition. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We are here on Southern Remedy for you. That's right. This is the MPB uh, weekly radio program that answers your questions about any kind of healthcare issue that you might have some interest in. Maybe it's a new medication that somebody's put um, put, put you on, or maybe it's something uh, that you haven't quite nailed down as far as a medical disease or a symptom that you'd like some answers to those questions, email us. You don't have to uh, do it right when we're on the program. You can uh, send those emails off when you get the hankering to uh, get a, an issue uh, sort of uh, answered that you might have. That, that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Got an early caller. Want to uh, reward them with a um, with a quick um, attention to them. So we've got David from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I was outside and I got stung by a one of them big red wasp in the face. Uh, and I don't know if I got stung multiple times or what. But anyway, uh, I got stung in the face and. Uh, I have massive swelling in my eyes uh, above the eyebrow and below the eyebrow, and I got massive, look like fluid pus pockets of water under my eyes. Even my eyes are are, are, are being shut. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, my question to you is, I took some aspirin and some Benadryl. Uh, is there a, um, what do you call it, do I need to, what do I need? What do I need to do to watch or be concerned whether or not it may it, let me get let me get my mouth and my brain and my and, yeah. <laughs> anyway I, is there a danger of me losing my sight or any damage yeah. to the optic nerve or what can I do or do, or do I just need to ride it out? Do, sure. do I, am I worrying myself to death or, or, or is this a major concern? 
Yeah, David, so a couple of things on that. So, you know, those nasty stinging insects, wasps, bees, and so forth, uh, hornets are another one. So they can cause a lot of problems, uh, ant bites too, and a lot of people can develop an allergic response to it. So the swelling part doesn't necessarily mean that you have an allergic response. It's variable. So in other words, if it... It stings you on, say, the arm or the face. If you have, it's it's common to have swelling around that. It doesn't mean you're necessarily allergic. It's when they sting you, they inject you with all kinds of nasty substances to cause pain, and it also causes swelling. So your body's response to that is what sort of causes a lot of that swelling. If it generally is more than, say, softball size, as far as not like raised up, but in in diameter. Um, then that's probably getting into the realm of, of an allergic response. And you can have what's called a local re- response or a regional allergic response. In other words, it just stays in a certain vicinity. Now, when you get stung on the face or the head, it's a little bit different, mainly because of a couple of different things. Number one, it's not as well localized to that one spot. And because so many things are going on, you've got your eyes there, you've got your mouth, you breathe and eat through there. So it's it's important to pay a little bit more attention when you're stung around those structures. And the other part of that is the face has an, and the head in general has a lot of blood vessels in it. So it's going to bring a lot of those inflammatory substances to that area a lot quicker than, say, your hand or your foot is. So it's going to uh, potentially have a lot more swelling uh, and a lot more bruising and bleeding underneath the surface. Sometimes you can even get that. So the things to watch out for, if it in you know if your eye is swollen shut, I would tell people, or if you're having extreme pain that persists beyond about 30 minutes to an hour after getting stung and just won't go away, you need to see a doctor to look at the eye itself, make sure that you're not having swelling that's causing some compromise there. Uh, If you're able to see, you know, open your eyelid still and see and things aren't blurry, um, you know, any different than what it normally is for your eyesight, then that's probably okay. The two other things to watch out for are difficulty swallowing. So if it's more difficult to swallow different things or you feel like you're getting choked or can't quite get, get substances down, either liquids or solids, or if you're having problems breathing, Those are the two things that you need to be seen about. Now, some of the things that you already took can be helpful. Aspirin, not so much. I mean, it can help with the pain. Tylenol might be a little bit better there. Uh, And, you know, aspirin will thin out your blood, too. So there may be a little bit more bleeding or bruising around the spot if you do that. So I usually tell people Tylenol. Um, but the Benadryl will help with the allergic side of things. Keep in mind, it's only going to last about four to six hours. So after that time period, you may have to redose with the Benadryl, or you could take a long-acting antihistamine like Allegra, Claritin, uh, Zyrtec. Those are all equally uh, good. But if you're, uh, you know, if you're about a day or more afterwards and you're still having swelling, that's another reason to have somebody take a look at it because you can have an infection that can set up around that spot too. Um, so that's that's my general advice, David, on that. And without seeing you, you know, face to face, it sounds like you're not having the swallowing problems, the breathing problems. And if it's about a day or two removed and it's getting better then uh, you can continue to take either the Benadryl or something like Claritin or Zyrtec or Allegra 
Um, and also, you know, you know, people put all kinds of stuff on it. My granddad used to swear about chewing tobacco, you know, putting that on there and, uh, not much that can help that way. Something that's cold can help because anything that has anywhere you have inflammation in the body, active inflammation, if you put something cold on that and you have, you know, you bring the temperature down, that's going to reduce the swelling in the area too. So that would work. That's probably why the old, you know, sort of wives tale and home remedy of putting the steak on there. That's why that worked because it was cold. Um, so a hot steak would not be a good idea. So David, that's some uh, general things to keep in mind. Uh, uh, like I said, I don't have any problem swallowing or don't have any problem breathing or anything. It's just that the, 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 the I look like something out of a horror movie. Yeah. I mean, I got put my eyes are almost, you know, swollen shut and i got big pulse pockets and how how long how long ago did you say that you got stung this morning yeah take another dose of benadryl four hours after the first dose and uh you probably are going to have enough time to take another one before you go to sleep if you're still swallowing you're still breathing okay you could probably ride it out overnight till tomorrow but there's not any danger to the optic nerve. That's the only thing I was No, optic about. nerve's way back in there, and that's not going to be something that's that's going to be damaged. All right, I'll just ride it out. Thank you so much for your uh, All right, David. Call. All right, thanks for calling. The other thing to keep in mind, too, if you do have an allergic response systemically, you probably need to see somebody about that so that they can give you, prescribe you something called an EpiPen. So this is epinephrine that can save your life. We have way too many people that die in the United States, and, and, you know, unfortunately, some in Mississippi, just because we have a lot of outdoor activities and a lot of stinging insects for most of the year. So that's something if you do have an allergic response, talk to your physician about that and whether or not prescribing an EpiPen for you might be the right thing. We're going to go to our friend Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. I want to ask you a question about blood pressure. I've been taking low tensin for about, well, at least 20 over 20, about 22 years for blood pressure, and it's worked great, no problems, everything's fine, you know. Yeah. So uh, yesterday I was I was at the grocery store, and, and they at the the drugstore in the back has a blood pressure thing where you can check your blood pressure. And I sat down there and checked my blood pressure, and it was like 69 over 30. <laughs> and I thought, what? That's probably not, yeah, that's probably not correct. That's way low. The only... The only humans that could, that should have that low of blood pressure are newborns. Um, so that's about the uh, newborn's blood pressure is about 60 over 40. And if that was a true blood pressure, Sue, you would not be able to stand up, much less talk. So um, that's well, a... I thought, you know, I, I thought if, um, if I was in the hospital, they'd start an IV and put some in there, what made my blood pressure go up. Because, yep. I mean, that was, so I checked it about three or four times, and uh, every time it came back real low like that. I'm just wondering if the, if those machines are if they ever get calibrated or if it make was it the apparatus that's not me that was yeah it's probably the apparatus it's probably the the blood pressure machine so years ago you know you used to have um, an opportunity to calibrate these and people could go in and reprogram it and that kind of thing and some of you can still do that. But for the most part, once they've gotten to the point where they're not operating correctly, they'll replace either part of it or the whole thing. And sometimes they're accurate, but you also have to be taking it accurately. So you have to be, you know, if you look at the the rules for taking blood pressure, uh, you should be seated with your feet on the floor, your back supported. You shouldn't talk or be eating. You shouldn't smoke 30 minutes before you uh, take your blood pressure 
Um, you don't need to be moving around. You need to have, you know, a quiet room. And it's best if you can take an average of three readings. In fact, that's sort of the norm for patients who come in with elevated blood pressures in our clinic. We have a protocol where they get their blood pressure taken first off when they check in with their vitals. And then if it is elevated, we'll put them on a separate machine in the patient's room that they go into and uh, in the exam room. And we uh, put the blood pressure cuff on. They press a button. Nurse presses a button. And it takes three consecutive readings, one minute apart, and then it averages those out. And that's a much more accurate way of doing the blood pressure measurement and, um, you know, sometimes these machines are, go- are good, sometimes they're not. But, uh, you know, a blood pressure that low, you're going to have some symptoms. Um, so that's the other thing that I want to, you know, that I ask people and they say, hey, how low is too low? There are some general rules depending on what kind of medical conditions you have. But, uh, you know, a general rule of thumb is how do you feel when that blood pressure is low? Um, now, high blood pressure, it's a little bit different. People, I've had seen patients that had blood pressures of 220 over 110 and came in and they didn't have any symptoms whatsoever. But low blood pressure, you have to be able to generate a blood pressure that's high enough to perfuse your brain and your heart and the rest of your organs. And if you don't, you're going to have symptoms like you're going to be lightheaded, particularly when you get up from lying down to seated to standing up. Or you're going to have, you know, chest pain. If you already have heart, uh, a heart condition, you might have some chest pain with that. Uh, so that lightheadedness where you feel dizzy, not necessarily the room spinning, that's different, but a dizziness like you're about to pass out or you get tunnel vision and your blood pressure is low at that point, that's the point where I would say it's too low. But plenty of people who are in their 80s and 90s um, who have blood pressures of 110 over 70, and they're doing just fine. Um, and so it's not necessarily a an absolute number, or shorter people for that matter. So if you're a little bit shorter, your blood pressure tends to be a little bit lower. Um, so, you know, if you're a little bitty uh, person, maybe you're four foot, eight inches tall in heels, and uh, you measure a blood pressure and it's 90 over 50, that that may be your true blood pressure. My next question would be, how do you feel when it's low? So, Well, about a month ago, a friend of mine with a blood pressure cuff came by, and she checked it, and it was really low then. I thought she didn't know how to check the blood pressure. That's what I was saying. But yeah. it was real low then, and uh, it was low yesterday. And I'm just thinking, what, what, what would cause a person's blood pressure to go really low? Yeah, lots of things. Uh, so activity can do it. Uh, dehydration can do it, too. Again, you're probably going to have some other things going on. Your pulse rate may go up if you're dehydrated. Um, you may have some of those other symptoms we mentioned. But um, from time to time, it can it can vary like that. I've had some patients that we never did really figure out how you know their blood pressure being low, and it may be you may want to check in with your physician's office. They may want to decrease that low tensin dose, or maybe even take you off of it. As we get older, I have seen that happen too. That well, I know, stopped taking that about a month ago. I I, I just yeah. stopped. that's what happened. It just is getting lower and lower, and I'm wondering what what would what would make some, what what is going on in your body to make your blood pressure go too low. Yeah, answer to that is we don't quite know. Uh, we call that idiopathic, which means the doctor's an idiot on that matter, but um, or the, the research is. But basically, we think it has to do with just the regulatory mechanisms in the body, um, that as we get older, sometimes it can be better. And I, I tell patients, look, I may not can explain it, but hey, that's one less medication you have to take or something to worry about. Well, thank you. 
All right, Sue, thank you for calling. We're going to go to Rachel from Eupora. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Doctor. So, you know, I'm always glad to hear Sue call in. It's like hearing from a friend. We, I feel Never the same way. Him. Yeah, I feel the same way, Rachel. It's a, she And she always, I don't know, she's got such a wide variety of questions that she brings to yes, the table. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I would like to hear you expound on the term leaky gut. Yeah, so leaky gut can mean a number of things. So there's a lot of people, you may think those listeners are like, leaky gut, this is, where is this going? Uh, it's not what you think. It doesn't have anything to do really with diarrhea, although it can present a, with a symptom of diarrhea. But basically, you have cells in your gut on the lining of it. And the layman's explanation would be basically, uh, some substances need to be absorbed through there. Uh, and sub, some uh, substances need to not be excreted into the inside of the intestine. So you want to be able to absorb everything you need uh, and not have to add, you know, that much thing that that many things back to it. Now there are lots of conditions. If you have a leaky gut, it means that those little um, those those um, places where those cells meet each other and are up against one another they're widened out and they leak and you leak all kinds of things. You can leak uh, the interstitial fluid. That's the fluid that's around the cells that can be excreted back into the interior of the intestines. And it can cause a really nasty watery diarrhea. Um, and it can also leak a lot of nutrients too, so that you're not adequately absorbing things that you need. Now, what causes this? You can have it from infection. You can have it from, abnormalities in the bacteria that are in the intestine normally. You know, we have a lot of bacteria in our intestines um, for a good reason, because it helps us do what we need to do. In fact, some of those bacteria make a lot of substances, a lot of vitamins. Vitamin K is one example that helps us to live, basically, particularly with our clotting factors and other things that it's useful for. Another thing that can cause that is an autoimmune process, and there's a, a few that can do that. So you can have uh, colitis, which is just an inflammation of the colon, or you can have other conditions where you have a leaky bowel, and the manifestations of that or the symptoms of that is going to be that sort of watery diarrhea. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I have a a follow-up question with that. Sure. Uh, Could it possibly, could any of those symptoms possibly cause brain fog? Yeah, brain fog is one of those terms where people are like, hey, I'm just not thinking uh, clearly. I'm not able to recall some things or do some processes. So, you know, it, it really, to answer that, it really depends on what's causing the leaky bowel syndrome So, or the leaky bowel symptoms. So if if you have a lot of these anti-inflammatory, sorry, anti, of, of these autoimmune disorders, or you have an infection, certainly that can affect your thinking, um, and for a number of reasons. It could be that you're losing a lot of electrolytes and fluids um, in your gut, and that's causing you to not think as well. Or it might be that um, with an infection, you're producing a lot of nasty substances that um, interfere with your thinking. So it could be a number of things. So yeah, the the question is, sure, it could be related to that, but you really need to get back and answer that question about 
what's causing that leaky bowel syndrome? And and people may say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you have diarrhea that goes on and goes on, and maybe you have some other symptoms of not absorbing a lot of nutrients, uh, or maybe you're getting dehydrated a lot, a physician might get a sample of your stool and then test that uh, to see, or they may even do an endoscopy. That's where they have that lighted tube that goes up inside the intestines, and they can see, you know, in there too while they do that. And if they see a, a portion of the bowel wall that looks abnormal, they can take a little piece of it, send that off to a pathologist, and they sometimes they can make the the diagnosis there. So there's things like lymphocytic uh, colitis, uh, interstitial colitis. There's all kinds of different things that could be causing that, but you really have to get to the cause, the diagnosis. So. If you or somebody are having that, I would suggest that your physician, you know, with those symptoms, that either they do some preliminary tests, they're not going to be able to do the endoscopy, but there may be some other lab tests that they can do or stool tests that do a sort of a screening of what that might be, and then send that, uh, maybe send you to a gastroenterologist for some of those other things to really get down. But if you don't get a really good, firm diagnosis on that, then you're not going to be able to treat it appropriately. And there's lots of different treatments depending on what the cause is. Uh-huh. Just one more uh, observation. I find that when I have a good BM in the morning uh, and I don't eat a heavy breakfast, that I can uh, go through the day with clear with a clear mind and more energy. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and it, it does, and it just goes to show you that our gut and how it works really ties into the rest of our body. You know, a lot of people don't think it's that important. There's a lot of organs that are important. Um, but, yeah, if you don't have uh, – if your gut's not functioning appropriately, you may be losing some substances or not absorbing some substances when you're having that flare-up, and that may be causing – uh, you know, some of the changes in how you think. Uh-huh. Okay, thank you so much. You did just what I asked you to do was to expound on it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel, right. and good luck to you. Um, yeah, lots of different uh, interactions in the body in different ways, so it's always interesting to see, you know, how, well, I say it's interesting. It's interesting to us who try to diagnose things when, you know, the old adage about a patient said, you know, I know it's bad when the, my doctor or doctors say, huh, that's interesting. They, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's not, certainly not interesting to the patient having to go through that. But, um, but always, you know, we, sometimes it's okay to treat symptoms alone. Um, mild symptoms that are only there for a certain amount of time, you know, symptoms like fever, cough, diarrhea, um, but on the other hand, if they're going on for long periods of time, you really need to ask the question why. Always a great question to ask. And you need to do some tests. Well, history, uh, number one, taking a good history um, and, and giving that story to a physician or a medical provider who can get to the diagnosis. And then following up with a good physical exam and maybe some lab tests to try to get you an answer about what is the why. Why is that going on and causing some of those symptoms? Because if you don't have that, now you're just like throwing darts in the dark. Um, and um, a lot of people get away with, you know, treating things appropriately that way. Uh, but really, to practice good medicine, you have to back up. You have to say, okay, wait a minute. 
what's actually causing this. I mentioned email. Uh, always a good way to con uh, to uh, contact us to um, uh, connect with us about your questions, and we love email because you don't have to you know just be uh, just call in during the hour. You can always send us those emails. We do try to share those with people if you give us permission and uh, try to respond back to those as quickly as we can. Had a good email here from somebody, and this is a common question I've gotten asked this before in a clinic from some of my patients. Uh, the listener says, I probably drink too many bottled green teas daily and not enough water. Is there a danger taking in too much aspartame? These are sugar-free teas. Also, how does being not hydrated enough affect my blood pressure? Two very good questions. So the first uh, I'll take, you know, what what are the effects of bottled green tea, particularly if you have hypertension. So, you know, there's lots of different drinks out there. And you really, if you do have a medical condition like hypertension, it's always a good idea to know what's in those. So thinking about the ingredients and either looking them up yourself at a reputable site or uh, not the manufacturer site, but uh, somewhere that you can really look at that. WebMD is a good one that I, you know, you can go to, and there's plenty of others. Or if you want somebody to do that, um, who's an expert at it, ask your pharmacist. They're always a great resource. They have some databases that they can look at to try to figure that out. So in this case, you know, some of, we'll take the sweeteners or the non-sugar sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners. Um, they're sometimes called, and there's lots of them out there, but aspartame is one of them, one of the older ones. And, you know, always a good question that comes up is what kind of effects is that going to have on me? And there's lots of studies that looked at multiple effects. Most of the time in the amounts that they're diluted in that drink, they are safe and they haven't had any long-term consequences of that. Now, some people are going to be like, yeah, they can cause cancer. That is true in amounts that were a thousand times more than what uh, you can put in those drinks. And that was mainly to animals and not people. So uh, certainly there's a lot of risk with that. You know, if you think about it, if you had uh, chocolate is a good example. So chocolate, if you ate, um, you know, five, ten pounds worth of chocolate at one sitting, the substances in that chocolate, that's going to cause you some harm. If you drank um, 20 energy drinks or 20 cups of coffee at any one time, you're going to have some bad side effects, and it could kill you. So that's just to put things in perspective. Anything in large amounts uh, that you know, are above and beyond what our body can handle, those are things that can, that can kill us. Um, oranges, did you know that? If you eat like 1,000 oranges in a sitting, I don't know who could do that. But if you could, you would die. I mean, there's like some overdoses of some things in there that that sort of overwhelms your body's ability to do that. But in general, in the amounts that are in sweeteners, aspartame's not really that that harmful. Couple of caveats, if you do have GI problems, so if you have um, you know, if you've had bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery, most surgeons will say, "Hey, it's probably not a good idea to take those substances because they can interfere with the with the adjusted mechanisms of the gut and how it works." You you may have some uh, some uh, excess gas with that too, or if you have other GI you know problems, you may want to talk to your physician about that. And then uh, the caffeine probably is the biggest thing there. If you drink a lot of green tea, green tea has caffeine in it. It's just not as much caffeine, say, as black tea. 
now, some of it is decaffeinated, and it's probably okay even in large amounts. There is some small amounts, and anything that says it's decaffeinated doesn't have zero caffeine in it. It just has really small amounts of it. Um, water, always a good thing to drink unless you have some limitations like heart failure or kidney failure uh, or if you're on dialysis. But uh, the other question is, how is being not hydrated? How does that affect your blood pressure? Sort of what we touched on earlier with our caller, Sue. Um, if you're, um, you know, if you're dehydrated, it means you don't have enough water in your system, particularly in your bloodstream, and that can cause your heart to have to work harder to pump the less uh, a lesser volume of blood to all the places it needs to do that, including your brain and your heart. Uh, or it might cause you some problems so that your blood pressure is so low that you pass out. So being hydrated is very important, particularly if you have hypertension. So thanks to our caller who emailed in lots of different things this morning. Got some good questions so far and a couple of people on hold right now. going to go to Steve from Gulfport. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Steve. Uh, how are you, doctor? How are you? Good. Uh, I want to talk about, we're talking about gut health. Uh, I hear about yogurt and kimchi and uh, they say sauerkraut, but I'm interested in the yogurt side of it. What what type, what kind of yogurt do you recommend that that's, that promotes a healthy gut more than others? Yeah, there, you know, there's a lot of research in that, too, and we don't know all of it yet, um, but we do know that the types of bacteria are, are very important in the gut. And um, it can help in lots of different things. And actually how that is established, there's a little bit of an association in some of the research with uh, the types of food you eat early on with determining your immune system. So if you think it makes a lot of sense, if you think about it, when we populate, when we're in, when we're in, we're in, uh, in uh, the uterus in development before we're born, we don't really have any bacteria in the gut, so it's a sterile environment. Pretty soon after birth, though, we start to develop that. We start to populate our gut with a lot of bacteria, and that changes over time. And there's a lot of research into, into well, what are, what are those changes? What's appropriate? And what are some of the things, uh, the risk factors, say, with antibiotic use early on, or with what we eat early on, or with breast milk versus formula, that can change that. And then later on, the types of foods you eat can certainly affect the types of bacteria. So that's sort of the science behind it. A lot of people noticed decades ago that eating live yogurt, used to be that's the only yogurt you could get. Now we have pasteurized yogurt and yogurt that's pretty much sterile. But it has to be live yogurt. So that has certain bacteria in it, lactobacillus and acidophilus are two of the, the types of bacteria that you'll see in that and others. And basically, those have live bacteria, but they're good bacteria. They're not bacteria that are going to cause an infection in most people. So that's the types of bacteria that are touted to have positive effects, not only just on your gut, but your overall health totally healthy unless you have other limitations there so that's the one i would look for not necessarily a brand name but ones that have live bacteria in it so it'll say live yogurt um, in it and um, you know but you don't have to do that you can actually 
the types of food, again, can stimulate certain types of bacteria in your gut. And some of them, you know, you do populate by, you know, eating things that have some of those bacteria on them. So uh, all the food, you know, the raw foods that we eat can have a big uh, part to play in that. Generally speaking, for gut health, um, I tell patients, eat a lot of things with fiber in it. And if you have any kind of questions about fiber, you can look at foods and figure that out. Or you can think about all the things you have to chew. So there's there's non-insoluble fibers that you can't break down. If you have to chew something up and it's real stringy, that has more fiber in it. Um, and that'll help your gut in a lot of different ways. It helps with the movement of materials through there. It's been associated with having less risk of colon cancer and obesity. That's just better for you. And then the, also the other thing is eating a diet that's high in fruits, vegetables, and whole grains can help with those to develop those bacteria in your gut. You don't have to take something in a pill. You don't have to do any of that. That might help on the short term, but the more we know about it, we, we know that the types of food you eat can really influence that. Um, and, you know, there's very little research on the whole cooking issue. Some people will say, well, if we're, you know, if we're the raw vegans, we'll say if we just do that, then we're really getting all those bacteria naturally. That may be true. We just don't have a lot of evidence to support that. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence, but not something that's, that's really been studied to the point where you'd have to have, you know, thousands of people on that diet and compare them to something else or the same people that are on two different diets over time. But um, that's a lot of stuff to throw out there at you. Uh, but uh, basically, that's how you can influence that. But there's lots of different reasons to eat a healthy diet, not just with your gut health. So I would choose one that's going to affect multiple things and then try to get something that works. I mean, let's be practical. Some things you may not have the resources to get it or the time to do it. Just choose a couple of things that you can do differently and uh, see if that has a positive health benefit for you. All right. Thank you. All right, Steve. Thank you for calling. We're going to go to Kathy, who's been patiently waiting from Biloxi. Good morning, Kathy. Hey, good morning. What's your question this morning? Um, I've been having lately, it just started about two weeks ago, a slight um, kind of a clicking sensation when I swallow. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no pain, nothing like that. There's a little bit of tenderness on the right side of my throat. Is that something serious that I need to get checked out, or is it something that will just go away on its own? Yeah, it could be both. Uh, Some of the things I would watch out for, first of all, let me ask a couple of questions. Uh, What's your age? Uh, 67. Okay. I know we're not supposed to ask that, but we're treating this medically today. And then the other thing is, do you, have you smoked or do you, have you, you know, have you ever smoked or are you, are you smoking right now? No, I've never smoked. Okay. No. Um, So, you know, those are a couple of things in thinking about that. And the, the biggest thing is duration. Like how long is this going on? If it goes on much more below, you know, beyond a week or two, I'd probably go get that checked out. Or if you're having problems swallowing, not just the sensation of clicking, but actually uh, what we call dysphagia, which would be difficulty swallowing, or odynophagia, which would be painful swallowing. And that can be either with solids or liquids or both. And um, that would be a couple of reasons to um, 
to, you know, to, to think about, you know, some of the warning signs or red flags, if you will, uh, that you may need to get that checked out. Your regular physician can start that, but uh, also the ear, nose, and throat doctors, the otolaryngologists would be the ones that can investigate that a little bit further. What could be happening? You could have, particularly if you have that sensation, you could have had some inflammation there. And when you swallow, it's just that that mechanism by which the the muscles are pushing that food or water down that they're just it's that that's what's causing that clicking sensation because of a little bit more inflammation on that one side and that just takes some time to heal like anything else if you think about you know if you bump your knee on something like I did this weekend it's probably going to take a week or so to to go away and same kind of thing on the interior or you may have swallowed something that irritated that side and uh, even if you don't remember it and but if it persists or the symptoms get worse that's the point where I would go get it checked out and they may need to do even something like a an, again an endoscopy where they look back in there with a little lighted scope to see what the tissues look like does sinus drainage have anything to do with that oh yeah it does so Sinus drainage um, can cause a sore throat or it can cause some inflammation in the throat just because all those nasty things coming out of your sinuses, if you have problems like most of us do, including myself in the South, um, when those flare up, that can cause inflammation downstream as it drips down the back of your throat. And you can even see it. Um, you don't even need any fancy equipment to do that. We call it cobblestoning on the back of the throat, and it's a sign that you've got some postnasal drip from above. And it looks just like cobblestones on the back of your throat. It's got that sort of texture to it uh, when you look at it. But that could certainly be it, too. Uh, how do you deal with that? Well, if you treat, again, if that's the why, if you treat what's causing it, sometimes the downstream effects will go away. Okay. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you for calling. We're going to go to, I believe it's pronounced Diona from Newton. Did I get it right? Yeah, that's right. All right. What's your question today? Well, I, I just uh, would like to know, uh, if I had a CT like um, uh, 10 months ago that showed I had a uh, mass on my kidneys. And it's been like 10, 10 months now. And I still haven't had a biopsy set up. Which I also had a cyst uh, on my ovaries. They did do that. Well, it wasn't a biopsy, but they told me on that one to come back in a year that I was uh, uh, my age was too up there for them to really do anything. So just come back in a year and on that one. But on the biopsy, nothing's been done. I, I've had no appointments set up, and uh, I'm just wondering uh, what what kind of damage is that doing? Waiting all this length of time yeah it, it could be a number of things so there are some things that on a ct scan or an mri that because of the way it lo looks we've gotten so much better at the technology that they can pretty much diagnose some things just by that and same thing goes for some of the liver lesions too so it can look so you know so characteristic that they can say okay this is a benign lesion Maybe we just need to follow this up in six months or a year or however long. So it may be that that's the case. But if it's not and you haven't heard from them about biopsy, you know, 10 months is a long time. There are some things that grow very slowly um, over time. But I would just double check with them to say, hey, is this something that needed to be done? Because 
every health system, every person is fallible. Um, so don't just think that they're not going to miss something. And it is okay. Uh, you, you know, hopefully you're not getting any pushback on this, but it is okay for any patient to try to track down, you know, things that don't go wrong. I tell my patients all the time, look, I'm going to make this uh, appointment for you with this physician to follow up, you know, on something. If you don't hear anything in a week, please let me know because I may need to bird dog that a little bit or get, get some of my, my team to do that. So, um, but that's what I would do is ask that it may be one of those conditions that maybe they just didn't communicate it correctly or communicate it adequately to you that this is a benign problem that, you know, they just need to follow up. Um, but that, that's the first step I think would, I would be, you know, and if you get a lot of pushback, go to somebody else, uh, you can get a copy of that, um, that scan and they may want to redo a scan at this point just to sort of see, because you really need to know what it is before they can, they can go forward. And that there are a lot of different treatments for things now, particularly on the kidney that, that they could do. Okay. Well, I appreciate, appreciate uh, what you just said. (laughs) And yes, I'll do. yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. All right, we're going to go to Sterling. Uh, Sterling, we've got about uh, two and a half, three minutes here. All right, thank you for taking my call. Um, my my question kind of stems from somebody told me that a huge portion of, of men die from heart disease in Mississippi. So my question is, you know, a statin like Crestor or something similar to that, is there any kind of side effect or bad, you know, reason people aren't taking it? reason I shouldn't take it or is it just a is it a no-brainer yeah so the statins particularly Crestor and Lipitor or their generics those are the two best that have been looked at to reduce your risk of of a heart attack or a stroke over a 10-year plus period so um, and there are other statins that do lower cholesterol but they don't quite have the evidence that those two do the most of the time, the symptom related um, reasons that people discontinue that is muscle cramps or muscle aches. Um, and that's a very low percentage of people. If you look at the, the clinical trials that went into, you know, to, to look at those uh, medications and at all the data after that, it's actually pretty low. However, a lot of people still have it. So, uh, my approach is because the data is really strong that this helps to prevent a heart attack or a stroke in individuals that ha- have a high enough risk. And I'll talk about how to do how to calculate that risk in just a second. But in those individuals, it, you can really cut down by 25 percent or more the risk of somebody having a heart attack or a stroke by taking these medications over that period of time. So um, I tell patients, hey, look, let's start, start you off on one or the other. I usually look at either one of those because they're pretty much equal in effect. And if they don't tolerate one and they have some side effects, I'll go to the other one. If they don't tolerate that, then I'll switch to something like Pravacol. Um, a Pravastatin is another name for that one, and that has a little bit less of the side effects of those two. But um, it's really there's not too many ways to predict that. It's sort of a trial and error process. Um, as far as the overall risk, just because your cholesterol is high doesn't mean that that you should automatically go on a statin. There's some absolutes to that, but you really need to look at your total cardiovascular risk. And there's something called an ASCVD, as in dog, calculator. 
You can go to the American Heart Association website. They'll ask you some questions on there. There's a little calculator that you can put in things like your age, whether you're male or female, whether you're, um, whether you, what your cholesterol numbers are. You do have to know those cholesterol uh, and uh, blood pressure numbers. And then they'll ask you some other questions. Are you being treated for hypertension? Or do you have, um, um, do you have diabetes? Uh, all those things are taken into account. They calculate what your risk is, and if it's high enough, if it's over about 7.5% over that 10-year period, then that would be the point where your physician may say, hey, you may need to take this. If it's over 10%, that's high enough that I would say you probably need to be on this unless we've got really good reasons not to. So that's the, that's the uh, approach I would take on that starting. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking my call. All right. Thank you. That's about all the time we have for today. This has been Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Tune in every day at every every day at 11 for all of our Southern Remedy programs, including this one on Wednesdays. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.